We will never leave you, even in the face of our death. The richness of our lives shall be yours. All that I have, all that I've learned, everything I feel, all this and more, I, I bequeath you, my son. You will carry me inside you all the days of your life. You will make my strength your own. See my life through your eyes, as your life will be seen through mine. The son becomes the father, and the father the son. This is all I... All I can send you. Come on. Men in a Retrospective Podcast, Superman Retrospective Series. Hi. Superman? That's me. From 1978 Superman, all the way through 2016's Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, Garrett. How can one man be so square and so delicious? Matt. Long past saving. And Adam. You diseased maniac. We'll look at all the Kryptonian Sun's cinematic adventures. The problem with Men of Steel, there's never one around when you want one. Was Richard Donner's vision of Superman deserving of its iconic reputation? Easy, miss. I've got you. You you've got me! Who's got you? Superman returns as bad as it's reputed to be. Hey, you know something? You're a real pain in the neck. What about 1984's Supergirl? Well, we really better talk. Find out the answers to all these questions and more coming up, courtesy of Percolated Media. This order's to go. Superman, released December 15th, 1978. Budget on this was $55 million. Box office, $300.5 million. And this was directed by Richard Donner, the late, great Richard Donner. All right, boys, you guys got to fawn all over Batman last year. Now it's my turn. I get to talk Superman. This is a movie that I'll go ahead and say this is up there as one of my favorite comic book movies of all time. It came out in 1978 and I'm probably going to make some arguments that it is still probably the best Superman movie that's ever been made. We'll talk about that as we get into the series but before we get into the logistics of the series and how we're going to handle it let me reintroduce my partners in crime. First, the one and only, very frustrated at his computer, Adam Bunch. Adam, how are you, sir? I'm Batman. No, wait, that's not right. <laughs> no, that's not right for this <laughs> series. And the one and only, Matthew Goudreau. Matt, how are you, sir? 
Why did you say that name? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, Superman. This is one saw very, very early in my life. I have a very big connection with this movie. Adam, let me get to you. What What is your relationship with Superman, the character, and this movie? Superman seems to be, for me, one of those characters that was always around. I was just born when this was in theaters, so I did not see this as a one-month-old. In fact, I probably didn't see two or three in theaters, but this is something that I remember playing on TV, playing on a VHS tape, always around specifically this movie. In the way of always being a comic fan, the comic guy, but Superman wasn't necessarily my go-to for comics. When I got into it, and when I was buying them with my paper route money at my local baseball card shoppy, I gravitated more towards Wolverine and Alien versus Predator comics, and, you know, things from Dark Horse and that sort. So I watched the animated stuff, and this was regular TV viewing, but I can't say that Superman as a character was mine as much as Batman spoke to me. So he was there, and I've got huge respect for the character and the creators of the character, but Superman, eh, it's Superman. Matt, what about you? Before I begin, let me just say, I love that Adam as a child rejected the most wholesome superhero in comics in favor of Alien vs. Predator and Wolverine. (laughs) And I love you for it because I have a similar relationship with this character in that everybody and their mother knows who Superman is. Even if you have never picked up a comic book in your life, if you beat people up for reading comic books, you still know who Superman is. And because of that, it took me a very long time to delve into him as a character within comics. I was a Batman kid. I was an X-Men fan, first and foremost. That is where my money went to, was buying X-Men comics. And Superman, I tended to read in collaborative stuff, whether it was Justice League or World's Finest. It was part of a group, but I never went out of my way to read singular issues. And as far as media goes, you got to remember, because I'm a different generation than you guys, I grew up at a time where Superman was not number one anymore. Batman had taken over the world thanks to 89, the animated series. Batmania was still running wild. And because of that, Superman sort of became number two in DC. And you could argue still is based on... Look at all the Batman movies we covered versus the amount of Superman movies we're covering slash anything related. But I also have a weird relationship, Garrett, because I was growing up when Smallville was on the air. And I freaking hated Smallville, but I couldn't stop watching it. It was the weirdest relationship I've had with a show in comics. And that was my, that was sort of the Superman, at least in the, the populace, that people thought of. And especially my generation, you know, I watched the animated series, which was done by Bruce Timm and company, which is excellent, but it never got the notoriety that Batman did, or the production order for that matter. So it's strange that all the media that was out there, for me, I never went out of my way, willingly or enthusiastically, whether it was comics or warming up the Smallville. There were things about it that I really liked, but something just never clicked for me. And if we ever get that Smallville podcast up and running, I'll gladly drive back into Smallville. But... I'll probably be like Lex Luthor in the pilot where I'm like, just let me drown, please. Just let me die. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, 
I also have a big relationship with Smallville. Hell, I just showed my girlfriend that show for the first time last year. We went through all ten of those seasons, and I'll definitely mention parts of Smallville as we get into this particular podcast and the next one. There are things that they get into that this movie pretty much introduces, and this movie we're talking about today introduces a lot. Also, I do want to mention, too, that the way we're covering the series is, yes, we are doing the first four Superman movies. We're doing Superman 78, Superman 2. Yes, that is only going to be one podcast, not two, for the Donner Cut, but I will definitely mention differences because I'll be watching both for that podcast. I'll do Superman 3 and Superman 4 this month. And I got to say, I have so many things to say about all four of these movies that we're doing this month. There are so many things about all those movies, even that fourth one. I have stories about how I saw them and what they meant to me. And after we do that, we're going to have a couple months off from Superman. We're doing other things. And then starting in July, we'll go into Supergirl, Super 1984. Then we'll do Superman Returns, Man of Steel. And yes, we are covering Batman v Superman. Again, covering the Superman characters that are in that film. So, Superman 78. This was a movie that... Like I said, I, I saw it very young. I did not see it in movies, though. When this movie was out, I was one year old. So there was not any way I was going to go to theaters to see this, obviously. My parents taped it off network TV in the 80s, and I watched it religiously. I mean, I watched that tape so much. And one thing about that tape is, and that particular broadcast, people don't realize <laughs> there are three cuts of this movie. There is this movie that we're going to be talking about today. It's the theatrical cut. I, I believe all three of us have watched that cut. It's about two hours, 20 minutes. Am I correct in that, guys? Yeah, uh, yeah, it's about that. And then there is the producer's cut, which I watched for that network TV version. That's three hours, and that's pretty much everything the producers just threw it, basically every piece of footage they had into that movie. And they put it on network TV because, and we're going to talk about the Salkins here, they love this money. Back then, people paid to watch movies on network TV, and they... We're getting paid per minute for this movie. So it was like a mini series. It was two nights, an hour and a half each, two hours with commercials. And that is the way it was initially broadcast on TV. I have a question on that note because I own this on Blu-ray. It comes in a triple set. It was actually the first Blu-ray I ever bought when I got a player. It's Superman the movie, only the Donner cut of Superman 2, and Superman Returns as a triple feature. So my question was, those two cuts you mentioned, are those available in any form of media nowadays? That's a great question. I know the Donner Cut, which was released in 2001. They did a whole thing about that where they released it in theaters, and that's only about two hours long. I know that is available, but I do not believe in any form whatsoever the uh, producer's cut is available, which is why I'm pissed off that that tape no longer exists. I don't know what happened to that tape. I might have just taped a wrestling event over it or something when I got older. But So those are the three versions. Adam, how did you see this for the first time? We, Matt mentioned that he bought this Blu-ray. Adam, how did you see this? I mean, we're about the same age. You probably watched it around the same time I did, right? Yeah, definitely. And I think mine was the same same type of way that parents absolutely were the same. This is probably on a RCA videotape with the tab taped over so that you could tape over it on the EP recorded off a TV to fit the full thing, for those that remember what VCRs are. But yeah, this I believe this was definitely a, a recorded off a TV, which many of our movies were at that time. Real quick to answer Matt's question, at least the extended TV version is available to purchase now. So you can buy the disc and Blu-ray also at minimum through Amazon, but they literally promote it as the extended cut TV edition. 
Okay, good. I don't have to go to a Comic Con. No, nope, it's, <laughs> go to the back alley. <laughs> now, before this movie came into existence, obviously this character had already been around what close to forty years or so. Yeah, forty years. And before this movie, there was another one that we're not going to cover. We're going to talk about it a little bit, and then it's a George Reeves movie. I believe they did a theatrical movie called Superman and the Moment. I know I did not watch the George Reeves version because by the time I got old enough to see this movie, I could care less about the TV version. I did watch it later on in life. Now, Adam, did you ever watch the George Reeves version of Superman? Never, never have. My my closest knowledge to George Reeves Superman is watching Ben Affleck play George Reeves Superman in that movie. Yes, which I actually I recommend that movie. Actually, it's it's a very very good. Film. He did a great job. It's a good insight. I didn't see this movie until I was probably about ten because actually it might have been a little bit later than that to be honest. Because I remember because I was I, I was not a Superman guy, but my grandfather was, and he was so hyped, non movie guy, mind you, for Superman Returns coming out, and he would talk about how it was going back to the old movies, and that was how I finally watched this for the first time. So I don't have a real overwhelming nostalgia for it except for when i saw superman returns with him and that is one of my favorite stories i've ever <laughs> i will i will gladly divulge in a couple months oh i can't wait for that yeah i have a story about that one as well okay so when it came time to make this movie let's talk about the directing i want to get to the script here in a bit but let's talk about the directing of this because that is quite a story obviously we know richard donner went on to direct this movie but there were some big hitters offered the seat of directing for this movie now Richard Donner had done The Omen. So the natural transgression from The Omen is obviously The Exorcist, right? So they asked William Friedkin to do this, who said, thanks, but no thanks. Sam Peckinpah was interested. <laughs> I know the story behind that one. And he went in for a meeting with the Salkinds, and when he produced a gun in the middle of the meeting, the Salkinds showed him the door, which is a crazy story. But the most interesting person who was offered this chair, Steven Spielberg was offered i should say he was going to be offered because they wanted to wait and see how that little fish movie he was working on was going to do before hiring him <laughs> but by the time this was ready to shoot that movie had come out was a massive success and spielberg was too busy doing close encounters of the third kind but we almost had steven spielberg direct superman which you know what come to think of it when i think about this movie i don't think that this movie's far off from what spielberg would have done at the time i would say no because spielberg and this movie in particular it's really a a great depiction of americana at that time which spielberg really taps into with close encounters so i do think they'd be pretty similar so they went to bond veteran who we've covered guy hamilton and he did get the directing gig but he had to drop out when the production moved to, from Italy to England because he was a tax exile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, could, he, he didn't have the gold figure to be able to cross border. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny because he's not the only tax escapee whose version of taxes caught them a role in this film. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Definitely going to get to that. So after all that, they had just seen The Omen. The Salkinds did. Loved that movie. And they thought, hey, let's get the guy who did The Omen to do our big super comic book movie, which, you know, is funny to think about because we just covered Pirates of the Caribbean. And we mentioned that Gore Verbinski hadn't really done any swashbuckling huge productions before he took on Pirates of the Caribbean. He had just done The Ring. So it's kind of a similar story there. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's amazing how synonymous Donner has become with Superman's legacy. It's, it's entrenched in their huge, his relationship, even extending to Jeff Johns and their relationship later on down the road. It's crazy how that ended up working out and how his vision is looked at for such a new director. And how many times does this work out that his vision is what people still hearken back to when they're looking at Superman? Oh, yeah. They worked so hard to first escape it, then go back to it, and mm-hmm. then escape it so many times, which we'll definitely get into as we cover the series, which is a big part of why I really wanted to do this series, because this is a vision that they will keep harking back to. So speaking of Superman, let's talk about who was offered the role of Superman. <laughs> David Soul, who we'll talk about next month in Salem's Lot. They kind of wanted him. Warren Beatty. They asked Warren Beatty if he was going to do it, and <laughs> he turned them down. Muhammad Ali. <laughs> was offered the role of Superman. (laughs) But producers, they really wanted a movie star in the Superman suit. They asked Robert Redford, who wanted too much money. Clint Eastwood, who said he was too busy. (laughs) But I'm pretty (laughs) sure he probably looked at this like, no, I'm not going to do that. And James Caan, who flat out refused, saying, there's no way you're going to get me in that silly fucking suit. (laughs) (laughs) Another movie star... Paul Newman, he was offered $4 million to play either Superman, Lex Luthor, or Jor-El, and he turned them all down. <laughs> he was Damn. like, nope. $4 million. See. They literally gave him Newman's own. <laughs> the weirdest story of the casting of this, though, is Sylvester Stallone. Now, Stallone was fresh off the success of Rocky, and he lobbied hard for the title role in this film. But he was either vetoed by his producers, who said he was quote-unquote too Italian, or Brando himself. Salone believed it to be Brando, and he would put Brando down in interviews for years afterwards. So either the producers vetoed him or Brando vetoed him. And once we get into Brando, I tend to believe Stallone on this, actually. <laughs> but we almost had Sylvester Stallone in the blue suit, which would have been interesting. You know, it's amazing, though, when you talk about money for this and, you know, the financing debt, clearly this movie has stood the test of time for 45 years this year. Warner Brothers did not make this movie. They didn't finance it. They didn't pony up the money. They basically just let the Salkins use their character. And if they liked what they made, they were going to put out the film. That's fucking crazy. Can you imagine? I mean, look at the comic book film landscape today. You cannot throw a rock without hitting a character that they won't put on the fucking screen. And that's what they went through to get this character on the screen back in the late 70s. It's unbelievable to think about. I mean, but this is also the time where, and this is why you get people still showing up to this day in Batman films as producers, because those rights were literally sold to college professors. The film right yeah. back in the day and <laughs> still making that money off of Batman and Salkins, love him or hate him, they at least did what nobody else was willing to do and take the chance to bring Superman to the screen. It's also important to note that this was, at the time, the most expensive production ever. You're talking mm-hmm. $55 million, which is astronomical at that time, and we were removed from both Jaws and Star Wars, and I put this, I guess, the same trident. This is the third tip of 70s blockbusters that have changed the cinematic landscape, because it is the godfather, no pun intended, of all superhero movies. I defy you to watch any superhero movie, let alone Superman, and have someone not compare it to Superman the movie in any capacity. Hell, they couldn't escape it with the various sequels and reboots and... Mm -hmm. What have you. But from his first audition, Donner loved Christopher Reeve, though it was determined that he was too skinny to play the part. So Reeve ended up being trained by David Prowse, another guy we'll be talking about here pretty soon. And eventually he went from 170 pounds to 212 when they were ready to start shooting. So Prowse really got him in shape. And Reeve was paid 
You guys ready? How much would you guess? The crowd was paid? How much was Christopher Reeve paid for this? Say a million dollars. I'm going to say half that. Reeve was paid $250,000 for this and Superman 2. So a half a half what Adam said. (laughs) A far cry from Brando's asking price, which we'll talk about here in a bit. You know what? That kind of shows when you're looking at the billing for this first film, though. Jeez. Yep. He's not top billed here. But I'll say, as much as that seems absolutely crazy, I think nowadays in the movie, they call that the Marvel method. Very, also, very true. I think this was a very smart decision to cast an unknown as Superman. Because it's an unknown, it really sells the tagline, you'll believe a man can fly. I think if you cast anyone with a semblance of notoriety, people would see the actor. But I think because Reeve was not known and also bared such a startling resemblance to Superman at that time. It really took people by surprise and was immersive. And also speaking of Bond, they went the Sean Connery route of casting someone that had worked before, but was not a star, but they stepped it up. Having Marlon Brando and Gene Hackman in the same movie, that's a big freaking deal in 1978 in a Superman movie of all things. This was also not yet, quite at the downfall of Marla Brando's career. He would still work for another 20-plus years, although this is much like The Godfather where his ego started to expand as much as his waistline did. Oh, God, so many Brando stories came off this set. And you know what? Brando was one of those guys. This was the apex of his career. Yeah, he continued working for quite a while after this, but this was his peak. He had just won the Oscar for The Godfather. This was written by the guy who wrote The Godfather. You're right, Matt. This was a big get, and I'm going to get to that here in a bit, but let's talk about the script real quick, because this original script was written by Mario Puzo, who wrote The Godfather. By the way, get ready to hear this a lot in the next few weeks. Puzo actually sued the Salkins for non-payment of his salary. <laughs> Uh, for writing this script. He wrote a 552-page script, boys. 552 pages. Okay, wait a minute. A page a minute? Yes. 500 and... Yes. Jesus Christ. He wrote the quadrilogy all in one shot. <laughs> I don't know how much cocaine it took to write that. <laughs> Stephen King would be proud. <laughs> People wonder why this was turned into two movies. I'm wondering how it wasn't turned into five. But the Salkinds, they weren't too keen on Puzo's script. So they brought in David and Leslie Newman to kind of touch it up. And they put some weird scenes in, even one including Kojak, who gives Superman a lollipop and says, Who loves you, baby? That was in their script. Thank God that wasn't included, because Donner saw that shit, and he's like, you know, i got to put an end to this. So he brought Tom Lankowitz, a guy who we also talked about during the Bond series. He wrote a few of those scripts. He came to touch it up, and I think a lot of what we see on screen is a result of him and Donner's touches. All right, well, that's basically all I have for the making of so far, boys. There's a lot more as we get into it, but what do you guys say we just kind of dive into this film a little bit? Go up, up, and away. We're starting off with a little bit of a preamble that takes place June of 1938 as a little boy tells us that Metropolis is in danger and that its newspaper, The Daily Planet, has become its symbol of hope. Interesting little way of starting this off. What do you guys feel about this? I, I honestly did not remember this. I remembered this as starting off on Krypton. I did not remember this particular scene. No, and I didn't either. When this opened up this way, I didn't know if it was something special for the version I was watching. Was it something added? I would look it up that this was the intro. I don't remember this whatsoever. I just remember the credits and starting on Krypton. But I kind of fucking love this. When these companies nowadays do everything they can to ignore the history and where these characters actually came from, I love the fact that this is actually willing to show a comic here and to start it off this way. It's very wholesome. And I think that is appropriate for the source material, especially with where Superman was at this time, because we're still in a conflict landscape. We're still pre-crisis. 
So not everything was thrown out with the bathwater. But it also ties into the Daily Planet, which is a major piece of Superman that is as important as Krypton or Lois Lane or any of the other things we associate with the character. But I totally forgot this to the point to where I looked at my Blu-ray and thought this was like a Return of the Jedi Star Wars 90s special edition changes. <laughs> yeah. Except it was good, and I didn't want to rip out my eyeballs and set them on fire. We are then treated to the famous flyaway credits, and my god, that score. Donner used to say that the theme to this movie is literally the only theme he has ever heard that utters the name of the film. And I'm telling you, you hear those strings and he's right. Now, we're going to be talking about John Williams a lot this year <laughs> in the next few months. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, are. three big series that he's involved in. But here, he's fresh off Star Wars. And we'll talk about those themes soon. But I got to say, after Star Wars, maybe the indie theme, this is his third most recognizable. What's funny is, he wasn't Donner's first choice. <laughs> Donner had just worked with Jerry Goldsmith on The Omen, but good old scheduling conflicts, they got in the way of that happening. Going into this, I was prepared to be kind of like, okay, I've heard this score so many hundreds of times over, and I'm going to be overhearing this score. But god dang, if if my goosebumps just like perking right a second that it starts, and as it hits its crescendo and really kicks in, I got a smile on my face. My son Alex came into the room and went, oh, you're watching Superman in a different area of the house. He knew exactly what was going on just from the score. So it's that synonymous two generations later. It's as good, or at least as recognizable, I'll say, as anything that Williams has done. It's become that iconic with the character. So much that even in today's movies, they'll at least a part of it. Because just those specific cues have become synonymous with soups. I thought I could get tired of hearing this song. Talked about last year with Justice League, they brought it back. You go to Six Flags, and you'll likely hear this if there's a Superman attraction. I don't think it's possible for me to get tired of this theme. I firmly believe that you could play this in any movie until I die, and I would be still grinning from ear to ear, because it just, it, it's befitting, it's triumphant, and to this day, I still think this is the most recognizable superhero theme ever. Now, Danny Elfman's Batman theme is pretty close, but I think this one flies just a little bit higher because it's longer and it's got the great crescendo, but it peaks. It puts you in the mood to watch this movie. We're then taken through the stars to a planet called Krypton, or Krypton, if you hear Marlon Brando say it. Assuming that's him. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say that not only are these models of this planet very well constructed, but this has another piece of music that I love, and it is the perfect way to introduce us to the crazy world that the film is about to introduce us to. Because initially you would think that this would start us off with Superman on Earth. But we went all the way up to Krypton here. And this is pretty much the first comic book origin story of the modern time. What that does, guys, is it gives it that science fiction element that I love so much in these movies. What do you guys feel about the introduction here, the shots of Krypton and everything else that goes on here in the beginning stages of this film? So I think I speak for Batch when we did X-Men all those years ago. He talked about how he judges comic movies based on how beholden they are to the source material. And having said that, I don't always agree with that statement. But I do think for the purposes of this movie, it is important and vital to start on Krypton. Not just because of explaining where Superman comes from, but they were smart to ride and I believe this in my heart. I don't think they would have started on Krypton if it wasn't for Star Wars. Because the miniature, you know, the miniature work, it is very exaggerated. It's too strong of a word. 
but everything's very glittery and god there's more white in this than goddamn away game for the jets but it's awesome to look at i appreciate the attention to detail i appreciate that they felt it appropriate to tell the entire superman origin story there's very little from his inception outside of him being conceived that is left on the cutting room floor so all this i firmly enjoy immensely yeah, I'm right there, too, and I had remembered myself not caring too much about what happened on Krypton and kind of being bored with it and such, but I wasn't. I was pretty enamored. I think the sets, especially the initial flyover, look pretty damn cool. I agree. It gives it that futuristic sci-fi kind of feel, you know, not only Star Wars, but Star Trek, the motion picture. It feels sci-fi. It feels futuristic, and after some really impressive credits. I mean, credits that cost more than most movies at the time. You had to kick it off somewhere that felt special, and and they did that here. Not only the set design, but the costume design that, almost 50 years later, doesn't look as hokey as I remembered it. It's got some hokiness to it, but it still plays as this idealistic, futuristic society about to crumble. Yeah, I remember seeing a documentary, or maybe it was a commentary with one of the Salkinds, and he had mentioned that the instruction he gave John Williams was, I'll make it like 2001. You want it to start small, and then it just gets big, big, big as you get introduced to the planet. And notice that when you're watching it next time, because that's exactly what Williams does here, and it, it just caps it off and this otherworldly planet so well. We're then seeing a trial of sorts being conducted by Superman's dad, Jor-El. And when I was a kid, it was tough getting past the fact that Superman had a dad. (laughs) (laughs) And I do love the tongue-in-cheek way he opens this, because we're opening it on the guy who made over $3 million for this movie, Marlon Brando. He made $3.75 million for this, boys, for 12 minutes of screen time. (laughs) And 12 days of work. 12 days of work. He starts it off by saying, this is not fantasy, this is reality. The more I think about that, I'm like, you know what, Donner put that in on purpose. Um, so Marlon Brando, let, let's talk about him. Now, like we said, this was by the writer Godfather, so there are ties there. But we talked about this last year when we spoke about Batman getting Nicholson, boys. This movie would have had zero chance of getting funding if it wasn't for this get. They needed a movie star. Donner wasn't going to budge from his original choice of the title character, which was really the start of his terrible relationship with the Salkinds and the other producer of this named uh, Pierre Spangler. So in lieu of that, they needed another huge star. And Brando was that star. Even before The Godfather won him an Oscar, this guy was a huge movie star. And it wasn't until they got him and paid him $3.7 million plus a percentage of the grosses that this production was able to get move on as planned. Now his performance here, it can be construed as being a mere presence, but that presence looms large for me and I do love Brando in this role even with all the stories of him fucking with Donner by saying he needed a bagel to act next to him and having his lines written just off camera so he can save him I think this role which really would be the peak for him is glorious what do you guys think of Marlon Brando in this for me it's a role that's been obviously made fun of over and over between SNL other skits it's easy to see at least take offense to some of the mumbling that he does going through but I think you hit it he looms large here He's definitely a presence in this opening set. Twice, actually, since we have kind of two. It's funny that there's they film two movies together because we got almost like two conflicting openings here since we get to Krypton. But Brando, for all of his, on occasion, sound like he just came off the set of The Godfather. He still, he, he commands a presence, and you at least believe that Superman can come from this guy's loins. I think he gives instant credibility to something that could be seen as too outlandish, even for 1978. Sci-fi, with the exception of Star Wars, which is more space fantasy, 
it was not a very welcoming sort of genre. And casting someone that is instantly recognizable was a sex symbol for the longest of time. Maybe one of the most famous actors who ever lived being Superman's father, who is the most famous American superhero. Nice little bit of meta-commentary. And Roger Ebert has one of my favorite review lines ever, where he said Brenda was paid $500,000 per cliché, <laughs> which is really what a lot of his dialogue is. He is Al Gore telling us that the planet is doomed, and we need to get off of here before the red sun explodes. So I think Brando does a very good job. And this is one of the last times you can say that if you're an enthusiast of his career. Because after this, we got Island of Dr. Moreau, we got Score, we got just a lot of lot, lot of bad projects. And he, he made Donner's Life Hell, and he tried to sue the Salkinds for $50 million. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure the commissary table was more than inviting for him. In all, he got about $14 million after that lawsuit. <laughs> because the Salkinds, once again, <laughs> did not pay him the salary. <laughs> And when it came down to it, I mean, they got more than Brando. If it wasn't for Brando, yeah, this film doesn't get funded. Probably it never comes together. They also never get their villain in this movie. Well, I mean, yeah. Hackman only came on board because of Brando as well, and that can't be understated. That did create the domino effect that landed that get, for sure. And we'll talk about Hackman a lot when we get to him. Jarrell is giving a trial to three criminals we'll be seeing a lot of next week, so let's save our thoughts on them until then. But I do like this scene as it sets up next week very well in a way that I wouldn't have imagined if I had seen this movie in theaters in 1978. Here it gives us a glimpse into his power, and I like how it works in that way as well. You know, we're seeing Jarrell at his height of power here. It's also done contextually because Donner envisioned one and two as one movie, and he shot them together. So in his mind, I don't really think he was looking at this as as one setup for later, per se. But it, it's effective, and I still love that Phantom Zone effect to this day. Oh, yeah. Oh, the big uh, 70s album cover that comes down yeah. and swoops them up? <laughs> yeah. I do, too. I think it looks marvelous, actually. I like the scene, and I like what it does. And not to mention, you realize that there's these badass villains the Krypton has as well. Uh, Zod is fucking menacing here. The opening, absolutely, you know. First you, and then your ass. I mean, he's just, he's fantastic. It's a shame that Christopher Lee decided to flee his tax troubles by going to California and therefore could not go back to Europe to film this movie. <laughs> That's who originally got offered. Shit, they couldn't film in Rome because of Last Tango in Paris and Brando. Trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, however... I'm going to say, as much as this scene is awesome, and yes, that, that transportation of the Phantom Zone scared the shit out of me as a kid, this doesn't have a place in this movie, I think is problematic if you look at this film as just one movie. It doesn't belong here, only because as soon as this is done, now we have another scene of basically Jarrell being on the other side of the fence. When you look at it without Superman 2, in hindsight, it just kind of sticks out a little bit. I think if they well, at least finished this film or got to the point that they wanted to, where when he throws one of those missiles into space, we at least see them break free, I think it would have been a fitting end. But we don't get that in this film. We get that next week. We cut to Jor-El in an argument with the council. As he says, they must evacuate the planet as it will explode within 30 days. Now, this gets us something I need to ask. How does he know this? And are we supposed to take Jarrell as some kind of prophet or just an overprotective father? He's the foremost scientist on Krypton. Mm-hmm. So he, he's definitely got theories. He's proven correct whether he... whether Oh, he, yeah, he, he is. Whether yeah. he found that conclusion himself or not. A little interesting bit of, I guess, continuity that came out of this is that 
There was a comic book run, Superman 78, where they picked up after Superman 2. They pretend 3 and 4 didn't exist, and they said that... I don't know the guy's name. Not Zod, the, the big guy. None. None. So they said he was jor professor that the council lobotomized because he had the same theories. So yeah, I'm like, yeah, Krypton kind of deserves its fate. I hate to say it. <laughs> Well, yeah, and then there's a cut scene that's in that producer's cut of some stormtrooper or something getting attacked from behind. All of this is, I'm glad they cut it the way they did, honestly. It makes more sense that way. And I gotta say, these glow-in-the-dark suits, they are cheesy, but I think they add to the thought that we are on another planet. And that's another reason why I kind of like these. And of course, uh, it was Brando's idea to wear the S on his shirt because I guess he figured either A, he wanted that continuity of a father and a son, or B, he wanted the ego of being the father of the <laughs> grandest man on the planet. But uh, uh, or, or he just thought a big S meant spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say, I mean, this is another thing. The fathers in the future installments will continue this. Russell Crowe wears this when we get to that movie. They did it in Smallville as well. So it, it's something that has carried on, whether he knew he was gonna, he was a prophet or not. You know what I never noticed until this watch was that all the other, whether they're scientists, clergy, all the other people in there, they have the house sigils on their chest as well. And that's something that a lot of the Superman TV shows have gone into, is, you know, the house sigils and what they mm-hmm. mean and the symbols. I don't know if Smallville got into that. I know that Krypton did that show of a couple years ago. But I've never noticed that that's implemented right in here. That was never touched on. You could tell that those are all house symbols that they're wearing. Jor-El swears he will remain silent, and neither him nor his wife will leave Krypton, as he says. I just love saying it the way Combrando says it. I swear he does that on purpose. Of course he does. <laughs> that's why I love it. This guy, he thought that Jor-El should be represented by a talking briefcase was one of his suggestions and a green bagel. So, of course, he's going to f- fuck his lines up like this. We then cut to Jor-El giving the finger to the council because his wife and him are staying, but he's sending his son elsewhere. Jor-El says that it's not safe for their son on Krypton and that Kal-El will not be like others, even if he looks like them. They wrap him up in a red and blue and yellow blanket and load him onto a ship with a speech that never fails to move me each time I hear it. It starts off this podcast for a reason. I fucking love this. And Brando, hell, he may have just read his lines right there and then on the set. I don't care. I love the way he delivers this and I love this speech. Absolutely. He says it with such conviction, they probably put it in, inside of a dinner menu. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for, for knowing that it was literally inside with the baby Superman, his delivery, though, I can't fault him. I'm not going to say he was wrong in wanting to not be over-rehearsed, because it's a, it's a damn moving speech. I mean, Laura, I don't think is given anything to do but stand there. Poor Mama L, but it's, it is a damn moving speech by Jor, there's no doubt about it. Brando, again, he wasn't here to really liven up the set, but he does something with his voice in this speech that is just captivating, and it is a great way to send kal off to his new life. Well, and think about it. I mean, we're talking 70s, okay? Yeah. We've all, well, shoot, you know, we're three men here on this podcast, but I think the Superman story, as much as anything else, is also a story about a man and his father, a boy and his father. Yes. And that type of man, that measure of a man, that depiction of a man isn't out of place in the 70s at all of that type of stoic character. And even compared to the father we're going to meet here in a little bit, Pa, I think you can make correlations there without having them as abrupt and as in your face as DC makes later. But I think you can see the connections and have that stoic father figure and 
I couldn't believe because I was expecting to rip <laughs> Brando pretty damn good. And there's enough to make fun of, but the characterization of Superman's father, I think, is really well done. I'm glad you brought that up, Adam. I wanted to touch on that, too, is that, Matt, you, you're wondering, you know, why did you like this... <laughs> This milk toast Boy Scout of a superhero that could be classified as boring, it is the father-son relationships that I gravitate to in this. The father-son relationships, especially depicted on Smallville in those early seasons, really hit me pretty hard because they really reminded me of the relationship I had with my dad growing up. And I know Bruce and Thomas Wayne, I know they had that as well, but not nearly as depicted in these movies. And I think that's what really, really, even as a kid, moved me to this character. So the fire approaches as Jarrell puts a green crystal in a ship and sends him away. In the world's biggest Christmas tree topper. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, so three years in this fucking thing too. Oh my god! I got a question. Why is there a green? Cri- is that kryptonite well, or not? That's in there. Interesting. You bring that up because I had the same exact question. What I found is they had red, they had blue everywhere in this film. They just wanted to give it a different color. And I don't know if they thought about the fact that it was the same color as kryptonite, but it gave an extra dimension to the actual character. And when we see the crystal later, it does stand out. You know, I don't know if a blue crystal, and they use blue crystals in Smallville later on. Mm. I don't know if a blue crystal would have had the same effect as when we see him with the green one later on. So they, yeah. made it gr- they made it green so that he would think it was a vegetable and so the Brando didn't eat it. Got it. <laughs> the Brando estate's going to wind up suing us. <laughs> <laughs> but the kryptonite thing is fascinating because in the pantheon of Superman stories, there are different variations of kryptonite that have different mm-hmm. colors. So you could have made it anything other than green than the one that presumably would kill him. Although, maybe Marlon Brando, Brando wasn't paying attention and he just he said, fuck it. Maybe he was colorblind. Maybe Jarrell was colorblind. The ship flies away and leaves the planet as the entire place explodes. Damn global warming. So we're seeing the ship fly as Kal-El is getting an in-ship education. What a long trip this is. <laughs> yeah, the, in, the in-flight movie sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Stewardess, I didn't order the Pythagorean theorem. The ship starts deteriorating until the crash lands on Earth, only to be found by Martha and Jonathan Kent. They find the boy, and Martha calls it a miracle that they've been sent a child. And we're hearing talk about John's heart as he changes their tire. Suddenly the car comes down, and who's there to grab it but Clark himself? And this is also when we hear the name Clark as it's Martha's middle name. So I I actually never knew that until I watched this movie for this podcast. I I never realized that either. I thought her middle name was also Martha. (laughs) (laughs) I I love this introduction to Clark, though. I, I do. I, I think this really does set up, again, he's left his parents, and we're thinking, oh, God, who's he going to find? And he finds these folks who basically prayed for a miracle, and here they have it. And we're going to get into some religious allegories here later, because I definitely have things to say about the fact that he leaves when he's 18, comes back when he's 30. There are a lot of things that are definitely added by Donner and Mankiewicz that make this a religious allegory, but I love the introduction to Clark here. What about you guys? Yeah, and that's also embedded with Superman as a character. He's the byproduct of Jesus and Hercules in a lot of ways, and some Greek stuff, because kryptonite is literally the Achilles heel. But as far as this introduction with him grabbing the truck, I think it's great, because they don't outright say just how powerful he would be before they send him off the planet. They just say his senses would be heightened, because his molecular structure becomes more dense. So to see him do something that impressive at such a young age makes you wonder what he's capable of later on. I'm glad they don't do anything. There's no fiery explosion or anything like that. It's just he picks it up. That's all there is. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's the perfect movie moment of show, don't tell. We got told quickly, 
but they're actually showing us right now. And even as a baby, though, he's got a smile. He just seems so wholesome. You know, you feel like he just protected Pa Kent. I got to say, though, Martha's really quick to want to keep this baby that she found on the side of the road. <laughs> Jonathan, I always wanted one of these. Well, Martha, he's got a family. I don't give a shit. He's ours. And by the way, if you want to know what happens to this ship, Smallville spends three seasons explaining that shit. So go go watch that if you, people are concerned. Oh, but they left the ship. Don't worry. It's explained. It's in the barn. I love this look they share as they look back at each other. They look back at the ship. They look at each other. And then they look at the boy like, oh, shit. What did we fucking get? We then cut to the Smallville portion of the film. Donner based a lot of this on old Norman Rockwell paintings. That's very apparent here. And this whole 10-minute stretch or so, it slows the film down a bit. But Donner makes an interesting choice here. This guy they got to play Clark. He's an actor by the name of Jeffrey East. Donner decided to dub Christopher Reeve's voice into his lines. And let me tell you, I'm on this guy's Facebook. He's still pissed about this. <laughs> He's been angry about this for decades. I was wondering when I was watching this, because I'm like, why does that sound exactly like a youth down Christopher Reeve? Mm-hmm. I never knew. What's interesting is on the producer's cut, they put his original voice back on it. And Really, there was no reason for Donner to do that. I, I really do question that choice. They even gave him like a prosthetic nose and makeup to make him look more like Christopher Reeve here. It was an interesting choice. Let's put it that way. One of the few choices with Donner's I don't agree with in this film. It's an odd choice. I get doing it for consistency's sake. But uh, they also say that Superman never really goes through puberty. He just <laughs> sounded like that as soon as, as soon as he started talking. Clark is just the ball boy here, getting pushed around by Brad Wilson as he crushes on Lana Lang. More of these two in a couple weeks. And then, just as a temper tantrum, Clark just kicks a football like a thousand yards. <laughs> and then just shows all of them up by outrunning a train, not to mention the car that they're in. Faster than now, a locomotive. Love it. Yep. Oh, Love yeah. It. And, oh, God, I'm so glad you brought that up. The escalation of powers here is tremendous. And we're going to see him catch this bullet. We're going to see him leap a tall building. We're going to see all of this stuff within the course of this movie. The writing in this, whether it's Puzo, whether it's Mankiewicz, whether it's Donner, whether it's the Newmans, is pretty tremendous all the way around, except for a few small portions, which I'll get to. And one big one. One big one, yeah. Now, this little Easter egg, I don't know if you guys know of this one I, I remember watching it when i saw it on network tv but they had this little easter egg of lois on a train where she's watching this guy run run across and she's trying to show her parents and her parents are like oh lois you're always making up these stories now first of all this girl is like 12 years old and clark is what like 18 here so it's like, <laughs> what are we doing here and it was just a kind of a silly little easter egg that i'm glad they cut out of the theatrical cut and that's one of the reasons why i rebelled against smallville is i've never liked him having any connection to Lois Lane before he starts working at the Daily Planet, no matter how forced it is, there are certain things that I like that he discovers once he grows up. And for the record, Lana Lang better than Lois Lane any day of the week. Coming from a gay man. Every day of the week and twice I'm not talking about, I get Lois Lane, but god damn, can we include some other women into the Superman universe? God damn. <laughs> Well, that's what Smallville did initially. Jonathan overhears Clark tell the other kids that he ran to get there. And Jonathan just kind of gives him a lecture that he was out here for a reason. And that goes beyond just scoring touchdowns. This leads to a playful run through the barn and ends with Jonathan going down with a heart attack. And man, was this heart wrenching for me as a kid. It killed me. <laughs> Seeing him grab his wrist and fall really scarred me and was really my first intro to a realistic death 
on screen. What do you guys think about this, boys? I mean, this is how Jonathan pretty much dies in the comics, too. Is it? Is it? Because I don't. I honestly don't know. In the first editions I read, yeah. Okay. Because I think this is very important for Superman as a character. To me, this is like the equivalent of Uncle Ben dying by a random act of violence. That Superman, for all of his power, cannot save his father because there is no superpower that can combat mortality. And what makes people human? That's the ultimate tragedy of, of Superman in certain ways. But also, I think the fact that it's a heart attack and not a car accident or a mugging. A like I said, save him for being a steal. Okay. I think that's something that he can't detect and is just part of human anatomy is something that I would never change if I was a writer. And I get writing Superman. That is not a task I would want because it's probably the most challenging character to write. But the Superman stories I like the best are when he deals with the prospect of dying or mortality, like All-Star Superman. No one's read that. Highly recommend it. The animated movie's really good, too. But ironically, less said about Death of Superman, the better. Because that story... Oh, God. Yeah. Hate to say it, everybody. It's not very good. No, it's not. I had forgotten that it had happened so early on. Well, relatively early on in the movie. I mean, this, this movie's going along. Like Matt said, it's important to the fabric of the character. You know, in the same way that, that Thomas and Martha Wayne getting shot in an alley by a random mugger is important. It would be stupid if, say, I don't know, like you made the Joker kill him in an alley, for example. Let's just say. it would. <laughs> you know, the equivalent would be like LexCorp tainting the medicine supply and Jonathan's heart pills weren't doing the job. You could find a million ways to tweak it, to want to make it personal, to want to make it all this stuff. It would never be as effective and it would never matter as much to what that does to the character than this. You have all the power in the world. You're a god on earth and you can't save your father from dying. God, I'm going to fucking cry as I break this down. That you can't stop your father from dying from a heart attack. And it's powerful as all shit. I agree with both of you, and I also agree with Matt in that it's really important for this character, especially towards the end, at the end of this movie. It really comes into play. He's wrestling with both fathers, and their lessons to him, and this really comes into play later. But as somebody who is being sent here and somebody who is going to try living here as a human, this is very, very important. I completely agree with you guys. Well, when it comes down to it, we're going to discuss some obvious religious allegories later on. But to me, Superman has been the Moses story as much as anything. Mm -hmm. he's, he's literally sent down the Nile in a basket. He's sent down the river to fit in and save people in another part of the world. And I know the Jesus allegory is there and everything else, but that's what we're getting here with Superman is, to me, it's the Moses story. And written from some Jewish guys out of Queens, I don't think that's hard to escape. We cut to Clark and his mom at Jonathan's funeral, and Clark feels guilty that after all the powers he has, he couldn't save his own father. We then cut to Clark waking up. His radio is a bit on the fritz, and he goes to the barn to find, as he puts it next week, this crystal calling him. And again, I'm going to call out just the awesome theme that Williams puts on here as he discovers this crystal. And this is actually the same theme that is actually on Krypton when we get introduced to it. So he's attached themes to everything here. And God, they're all just so good. We see Martha enjoying a bowl of Cheerios. <laughs> I love how that box is so prominent right there. <laughs> Pointed to the camera as she looks outside and sees Clark running with the dog. And we know what she's thinking. Clark isn't long for this place and he has to leave, which he reveals in the very next scene. Now, this Smallville portion of the movie, it would seem to drag the film down for a lot of people, which is already almost two and a half hours. But in my mind, 
This is a fable. This is a huge part of what makes Superman who he is. And this scene of Clark and his mom is reminiscent of any kid the day before they are going off to college. It, this whole portion, mm. it, it just it just makes this movie into something other than just another science fiction story. It makes it into something. Let, let's think about the time in movies. We had the Ten Commandments. We had all these biblical fables. And they needed an in because it, you couldn't just sell a story like this based on the comic book title <laughs> like you can nowadays. So to make it this biblical fable, I find it very bold and I find it very rewarding. It's vital because the common complaint about Superman from people who can't stand him or don't like him is that he's not relatable. So showing him as a growing up in America with no overwhelming privilege outside of his powers having a family, having tragedy, experiencing loss, and having an actual relationship with with parents, I think that makes him easily identifiable. And quite frankly, the movie doesn't work without these scenes. If it was just him being sent to the planet and they do like like a Batman Returns, speaking of Moses, 30 years later, there's a lot of ground that you're just leaving up to the viewer's imagination, and I don't think that would have worked. Yeah, if you want to endear people to this character, you can't overstate how important us getting a chance to see him in Smallville is. Matt hit it for those that complain about Superman, but also for those that say they can't write Superman. Yeah, there's a reason, and it's because you don't want to or can't bring out his humanity, and his humanity is here. Clark Kent is his version of what humanity is, and this is where he learned it. The bumbly Clark Kent is his take on humans. And for those that haven't read it, read, you know, don't watch. Yeah, maybe watch, but read Red Sun. See what happens when Clark lands in Moscow instead. It's a completely different story, and I think it's important to know that Smallville, Mon Pa Kent, shaped Superman as much as Ursula Sun did. And if anyone wants more of this, there's ten seasons of it on Smallville, <laughs> which is a lot of hours of television. I've heard of that. We cut to Clark in, I'm guessing, the North Pole as he treks through and throws the green crystal where it told him to throw it. And again, the sets here, the way these models grow is just fantastic. I love this Fortress of Solitude building scene. This was done at Pinewood Studios. We've talked about Pinewood Studios on this show many, many times. The set design, the craftsmanship over there, just glorious. And God, do these sets fucking stand out. I like the set. I think it's an amazing effect. I don't understand the what's and the why's of him traipsing up to the North Pole to throw a crystal in the water, though. We're not given explanation. I don't need this movie longer, but it's just a very mind to leave, and suddenly we're at the North Pole. Clark makes his way inside and grabs a crystal, which awakens an AI version of Jor-El. And here we get the ultimate homeschooling. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah, this is what my kids did during two and a half years. <laughs> This feels very psychedelic, very 70s. I do like the way we pan through Jor-El's face as he's teaching him and things. And this is all pretty good stuff. And I, and I also love how we learned here that the sun is the source of his strength and also the cause of Krypton's destruction. Pretty good stuff here, even if it's a little psychedelic. It reminds me of THX 1138. Oh, good call. So does Krypton at the very beginning, though. The, the colors, the whiteness, the way the characters look, that embodied head, it's just takes me to that kind of, as you said, that psychedelic feel. This is also the first time we see Christopher Reeve in the suit flying past the camera, and fuck, was Richard Donner nervous about this shot? It should be said, I didn't really mention it in the beginning, but they spent over a million dollars on just tests of the flying rigs 
to do these scenes. And so when it came time to do this shot, which was the first shot of Christopher Reeve in the suit flying. And Donna was like, oh God, please work, please work. Well, it did. And here he is. Jeff East, no more. He is now Christopher Reeve. We cut to Metropolis or New York as a taxi cab pulls up in traffic. And Lois is typing up an article asking how many T's are in bloodletting and how to spell massacre. Ah, Margot Kidder. Not a traditional choice, I'd say, for the role of Lois. There were many. I guess you could say more conventionally attractive actresses up for the part. Leslie Ann Warren, she auditioned, as did Ann Archer, who people might remember from Fatal Attraction. At this point, Kidder, she would have been in Black Christmas, and Amityville Horror would be made the year after. But as someone who has read a lot of the early Superman comics, both before and after her casting, I think this is where people who would write this character in the future would get her spunk. Because what Kidder does so well is illustrate the genuine ballsiness and not the traditional woman in distress that we'll see later. Do I believe that the most powerful man in the universe would fall in love with her? I guess we'll talk about that throughout the course of this podcast. But here, I'm just going to say I do really like Margot Kidder in this role. What about you guys? Um... She, as a hard-nosed New Yorker type of reporter, I think she works out fine. As this being, especially from Love at First Sight, the woman that Superman's going to break the rules for, I don't get it. I I guess we'll talk about more of that next week. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in lockstep with Adam. I think that as the role is written... And believe me, there's another character who is not how he's often perceived to be. She is excellent. And what I have to say is not because of a lack of chemistry with Reeve. I think they both work very well together. But it's always the problem that I've had with Lois Lane of that if you're going to make her Superman's world in so many ways, she should be either the peak of human altruism or flat out just the most attractive woman walking the face of the planet. And we don't get either of those here. And because of that, it makes it all the more difficult for me to believe that Superman would do what he does at the end of this movie exclusively for her. I've never been 100% sold on that front. You take Linda Carter when she's dressed up as Diana Prince out of that Wonder Woman 75, 76 TV show and place her here, she would look fantastic. But it's not just about, it's it's tough. This isn't ripping on Margot Kidder. I mean, they're, they're what, four and a half, five years apart? Mm-hmm. And with all due respect, they look 15 years age difference between them. Well, here was her peak. I, I think she looks fine here. It's, it's, when we get to next week, because they film scenes for the next week's movie a couple years later, those two years really work on her. They don't do her a good service. But I think she looks fine here. I think she has, like I said, she has a spunk. And I do think she has that little girl appeal to her where she has a real prettiness in the beginning stages here but as the years go on oh we'll we'll see this really not be a good look for her i remember my dad crushing on her back then we'll discuss a similar crush of mine coming up later on this year but it's it's funny if you i'm glad i had this subtitled on because you would miss so much of the dialogue oh with, yeah with the typing going on lois is talking about oh perry do you remember that expose i did on sex and drug orgies in the old folks home yeah <laughs> this is a superman <laughs> movie oh my god and she's asking how many t's are in bloodletting she's asking how many p's are in rapists later <laughs> on <laughs> you're right pg rated yeah we know which lines came from puzo <laughs> yeah no shit <laughs> Lois meets Clark Kent as he pretends to struggle opening a bottle of soda for Perry White. All right, let's talk about Reeve here. 
It is uncanny looking at Reeve as Clark Kent. It is, in my mind, one of the best acting performances I've ever seen. As here is Reeve pretending to be this bumbling Buster Keaton type guy. Clark Gable-esque fool, really, is what he really based it on. But he's just pretending to be this person to hide his identity, which, let's face it, isn't getting past those glasses for people who think about it for a second. I love Reeve in this role, and him and Kidder, as you guys said, play off each other beautifully. My God, I did not realize how good of an acting performance he did until I actually watched it for this podcast with a uh, very critical eye. What about you guys? It, it's utterly superb. It is unbelievable that the same man is playing both roles and doing it so well. There's a scene later on that just epitomizes that the best special effect in this film is Christopher Reeve, because what he does with it and making the characters feel so fucking distinct, it's phenomenal, and it's not something that anybody has come even close with in any superhero movie since. It's crazy how well we get the duality between Clark Kent and Superman, in a way that no one else has come close when playing a superhero in their alternate identity. I mean, we talked about, what, six different Batman? And none of them pull off the Bruce Wayne-Batman contrast like we see here. Granted, they're, they're different characters. It is a masterstroke in acting. However, as a not a huge Superman fan at all, I've never liked Clark Kent being this overly bumbling fool. And that's also something that's quite of an invention of the movie to a certain capacity. He's got some naivete in the comics as Clark Kent, but he wasn't a physical, obviously he's not overcompensating clown like he is here. And it's something that's never really jived with me. And I think is a, I would turn the world back myself to tweak this a bit. But it also, you know, know, this movie is in a certain way, it is camp. It is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it plays into that very well. I'm just talking about my own personal preference, what would I have done. You know, last month we talked about Jack Sparrow and if we could separate the antics of the actor playing him from the character on screen. And I was kind of worried about a similar thing here because really, since this movie came out, these two now both passed. They went through so much in the decades since. Like I did with Depp, though, at least in those first two movies, I was able to separate the lives these two had from the characters they were playing on screen. And yeah, it's weird to think that Superman would fall in love with this woman after so much of the chastising that goes on in their first few scenes together. She is not nice to him at all. <laughs> like, she's pushing him away when he's at the ladies' room door. He's like, She's like, no, you gotta go away. Like She but, closes an elevator on him when he's trying to talk. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> she is not nice to him, but not for one minute do I not believe that either aren't genuine. And I think that's what really separates this from other superhero movies as well so after white tells lois that clark's the fastest typist he's ever seen clark asks if half his salary could be sent to his silver-haired mother back home (laughs) and going back to the genuineness i love how lois asks clark any more back home like you and clark just responds not really no (laughs) (laughs) another thing donner does so well here is capture the franticness of a newspaper newsroom remember when that was a thriving industry guys under the age of 30 googled newspaper yeah right (laughs) clark and lois they head down an alley as a robber tries taking lois's purse but lois isn't taking any orders as she tries fighting back the robber shoots at them and clark catches the bullet in midair faster than a speeding bullet just a great way of showcasing superman's powers here and i love the look as clark just throws the bullet away and describes every content of lois's purse (laughs) great scene here that fucking patty jenkins would just rip off years later i think this is why bruce wayne hates superman so much because superman saved someone in an alley from getting shot (laughs) (laughs) 
I didn't even put that together. I love how clean this robber is, too. He's so well-dressed. Yeah, he's wearing a shirt and tie to come out and mug people. You guys ever been to New York? The robbers there aren't very clean. No, I gotta say, yeah. all the they're, sh- called, they're called ticket scalpers at MetLife Stadium. <laughs> <laughs> For all the shit that Gotham gets, I'm seeing a whole lot of crime in Metropolis. Yeah, this was the 70s. Imagine if they shot in New York now for the next movie. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, James Gunn's movie might take place in a war zone. (laughs) (laughs) We then cut to Otis, played by Ned Beatty, as he walks down the subway and is followed by cops, only to get crushed down in the subway system. Exactly an hour into the movie, we have our first look at the villain of the film, Lex Luthor, played by Gene Hackman. Now, Hackman had been around at this point. He was in stuff like The Conversation and The French Connection. And this was another great get for the Salkinds, as we mentioned earlier. An argument could be made that this isn't the way Lex Luthor is, and I'm sure Matt's going to get into that. He hadn't added a punchline to everything as he does here. But like with Nicholson, you don't hire Hackman to be an exact replica of a comic book character. You hire him to be Gene Hackman. And I do truly like him in this role. He has a snarky line for everything, and he feeds off everyone on screen very well. I really do like Lex Luthor in this. What about you guys? This is my thing. I think Gene Hackman is great in this role. But I've just never been infatuated with this take on Lex Luthor. And part of that is I grew up at a time where the calculating, cerebral, no-nonsense corporate tycoon Lex Luthor was at its apex with the animated series and post-crisis. So that was the version I knew. And going back to this, this was Lex Luthor pre-crisis. He was a mad scientist. It's kind of a bit of an over-exaggeration, but he was he was not the most developed villain. He was shrewd. He was spiteful. So it's the fitting, and it also services the tone of the movie. But if you're asking me, have we ever gotten the Lex Luthor I would want to see on screen, I still think we're waiting for it. And and you talked about Ned Beatty. He goes in the Robert Wall Batman bucket for me. (laughs) I don't find any of the stuff he does funny. Oh, I find him hilarious, actually. I find it grating. This retro for me is going to be like some of those Schumacher Batman movies after a certain point where I just, I feel like I'm on a different wavelength. But Hackman's great. He's always great. You know, I'm glad he's still with us. At 90-something years old. Um, Much like Nicholson, he adds credibility, and he livens up the movie whenever he's on screen. Although, unlike Batman, this is still a Superman movie featuring Lex Luthor. (laughs) It's not not Superman the movie, but it shouldn't be called Lex Luthor featuring Superman. Yeah, I think credibility is exactly what you get something like Gene Hackman for. He does a very good job with what he's given. Much like Matt, I'm going to say I agree. I I love Tycoon Lex Luthor, just the smartest man on Earth, President Luthor. Like, I, I really like that style. Shoot, even recently where Lex Luthor was in the Justice League. A lot of good ways to go, and I agree. I don't think I've gotten what I hope to get for Lex Luthor on screen yet. However, I think Gene Hackman is great every time he's on screen. I think he chews up the scenery like nothing else, even though Beatty is trying to do so around him. But I think Hackman is just... I think he's devilishly delicious as Lex Luthor, even though it's not my favorite take. What he does with it, I think, is damn, damn good. If a used car salesman had his finger on a nuclear button. Yeah. Adam, I'm telling you, I think you would really like what Rosenbaum does with Lex Luthor in uh, Smallville. I agree. You know what? It's funny. I thought of it because you look at the age Rosenbaum is now, and he still looks amazing for being 50. Mm -hmm. Imagine if they busted him out and let him play Lex Luthor now. Mm Mm-hmm. You know? I would love it. Well, they also, uh, like, not go too far down the road, but 
It always seems like when they've done Lex Luthor on screen, they've always cast, quote-unquote, against type. Yeah. To, to counter that, I mean, we, we talked about Eisenberg a little bit, but even, like, Kevin Spacey, when they cast him, it's like, you're going to cast him, he's playing Gene Hackman's Lex Luthor? It's not like, the, it's weird. Lex Luthor is the archenemy of Superman. When you look at him in comparison to the Joker on screen, where we've gotten some tremendously credible versions, outside of Gene Hackman, and even then, it's like there hasn't been one on screen that's both great and really faithful to the source material in the movies. Like, TV is... Like, Clancy Brown will always be Lex Luthor for me. Oh, yeah. Uh, in the same way that Mark Hamill, that is the Joker voice I read. I hear Clancy Brown when I read comics as Lex Luthor. Hell, he could have played Lex Luthor on screen if he was a little bit younger. Yeah, it's one of those characters that because of how it's like, we're not getting a Lex Luthor standalone movie like we're getting a Joker standalone movie. It just hasn't developed that well in the media yet. A few funny things about Gene Hackman in this movie. Obviously, he was not going to shave his head. <laughs> he wasn't going to do that. <laughs> wasn't even going to wear a goddamn skull cap. They... Donner had to basically plead and basically sell his family off in order for him to get him to do that at the end of this movie. But another thing was Hackman really wanted to keep his mustache. He came to set and he had a mustache and Donner was like, dude, you're already not going to be bald. I can't have you with a mustache. And Hackman's like, I'm going to keep it no matter what. And so Donner had one as well. And Donner was like, okay, you come tomorrow. You shave your mustache. I'll have mine shaved as well. And Hackman's like, oh, I, I respect that. Okay. So the next day, Hackman comes to set, and Donner still has his mustache, and Gene Hackman had shaved his, and he's like, wait a second, I thought you were going to shave it. Donner just reaches over and peels his fake mustache off, and he's like, oh, it's shaved. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's the kind of stuff that really gained the respect of a lot of these actors on the set, which is why what happens to Donner really affected a lot of them. So speaking of Donner, he wanted both Goldie Hawn and Anne Margaret for the role of Miss Testmacher, but... Surprise, they wanted too much money. <laughs> so we get Valerie Perrine here, <laughs> who's fine. I mean, I had a – she was one of my first crushes when I was a kid. I was like, oh, huh, I'm starting to get feelings. <laughs> Hello. Uh, yeah, she's very pretty. Lax is just annoyed that no one appreciates his genius as he makes fun of Otis's cat-like reflexes. And we're well on our way to the greatest land scheme of all time. And, man, do I love his – Four bade, 200 feet below the ground, complete with a well-furnished swimming pool. I wanted one of these so bad when I was a kid. <laughs> this fucking house is tremendous. It's a, I'm trying to figure out. It's the abandoned subway in Metropolis, right? I believe that's what it's supposed to be. Yeah, it's 200 feet below. Yeah, and I'm, I was trying to think if there was a take on like abandoned New York subways or what it was, but I always just found this fascinating as a kid. We see that Lois Lane still can't spell. As Clark asks Lois to dinner, only to be told no as she closes the ladies' room door on his jacket. We then cut to a helicopter, which is here to take Lois to the Metropolis Airport. Little Easter egg here, that's actually Christopher Reeves' voice as the air traffic controller in the helicopter. It lands and picks her up, and as it takes off, it catches the top of the building and starts to tip over it. Lois is in trouble, but who's here to save her? Superman in his first flight of glory, leaping a tall building, by the way, complete with a change of outfits right in front of a pimp who compliments him on his outfit. Ah, New York. (laughs) Say, Jim, that's a bad outfit with hookers. I know. (laughs) So great. I love the 70s so much. (laughs) 
I mean, look, we're going to get Richard Pryor in a few weeks. So oh, I know. This Dude. wasn't the most surprise. This was a precursor of what's to come. <laughs> Absolutely, man. You're starting to see the seeds develop. You know, we, we mentioned it in that Bur- first Burton Batman movie. We saw little seeds of what was coming, but we you didn't really think about it until later when we see Batman and Robin and everything's just out in his glory. Yeah, we're going to definitely see what the Salkinds really wanted to make in a couple weeks here. But this is another great scene as Donner's illustrating the danger above. As Lois falls, there's Superman complete with William's theme. And this is actually the first time since the opening credits that we've actually gotten the full Superman theme here. And we hear the great line as Superman says, I've got you. And Lois just looks down and says, you've got me? Who's got you? (laughs) Great line. Great line. My dad used to love that line. Can you imagine... Doing a Superman movie today, and you don't see Superman until halfway through the movie. Well, we watched Man of Steel, and Superman's not in that movie at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn. That's a great point, though, Adam. You, you know, we kind of we saw him fly past the screen, so we know his presence is here. But you're right. We haven't seen him in action at all until now. And honestly, when I was a kid, I wanted this stuff earlier. But as an adult, I'm seeing the escalation and it having to build to this. So, no, I couldn't imagine that because I don't know if people would take it, as Matt said, and we'll talk about with Man of Steel. It's the shark in Jaws. Yeah. You know, you want it so that it's more satisfying when you finally see it because they keep teasing you. Mm Mm-hmm. The helicopter's falling, and Superman catches it, so we know he just can't fly. He's also super strong. When Lois asks who he is, Superman just replies, a friend, and he flies away, just as Lois faints. (laughs) He should have said, hey, by the way, you should give that Clark Kent guy a chance. (laughs) (laughs) And it's from here on out, we get a few more demonstrations from Superman, and this was the stuff I loved as a kid. This was the stuff I would run around in my Superman pajamas and reenact Every single time I would reenact him grabbing this cat from a tree. We're seeing him turn around in the air as he catches up to a robber climbing a building. And <laughs> the scene here, it was so awesome. <laughs> Were there actually robbers that did this? I don't know. You know, this is the kind of stuff that Batman 66 did, though. Oh, yeah, completely Dutch, Dutch tilt on that building, which I loved it. I was surprised. I didn't remember that when we just get, so I'm assuming this is, you know, Superman day one, but we get a Superman montage to kind of at least showcase all of his powers, who he is, what's it, what he does. But it gives us the characterization of Superman after we've already gotten it from Clark. The way that he's talking to the people that he's stopping, the way that he's addressing the officers, everything he's delivering here is showcasing who Superman is, and it's pretty damn great yeah it's it's good accompaniment much like the music because of how much the daily planet plays into this movie i like that superman is starting to become a public figure this is not something like batman where he's a myth or they make jokes about him like he's the mothman here he is a purely viable public figure adding to the whole mystique of well who is he and Someone just needs to say, take off the glasses, morons. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's like Spider-Man. I'm waiting for J. Jonah Jameson to also show up in this building. <laughs> Superman also helps guide Air Force One to safety by flying in place of the engine. We see a set of robbers who escape a police chase that Donner will do even more of in Lethal Weapon. This this feels like something that William Friedkin <laughs> filmed and <laughs> Donner just kind of inserted in here. Yeah, there's, the, a lot, there's a lot of stuff. Like, this is... Sam Raimi will ape this in the first Spider-Man movie. Yeah. Yep. You know, like I said, there's a lot, almost every 
other superhero property will borrow or outright plagiarize this movie as mm-hmm. with Wonder Woman. We then cut to Lex and Miss Tessmacher as Lex is pissed that the most fantastic hoax wasn't perpetrated by him. Otis gets Lex's robe as he's still in the pool. <laughs> I love this scene so much. We then cut to Perry White, chastising his employees for not finding out about Superman yet as other newspapers pounce and they go after the most important interview since God spoke to Moses. That is not coincidence, guys. No. And as Clark says, he's not sure if Superman would like the publicity. Lois opens a note from Superman that says that he'll be at her apartment tonight. Now, we cut to this glorious apartment that print journalists surely can't afford today. <laughs> yeah, this is like fucking uh, Selena Kyle's apartment of Batman Returns. Like, <laughs> like, Who the fuck can guess, afford this? Yeah, it's like, how do you afford this? Well, probably because only 12 people live in Gotham and Metropolis, so they pay you to live there. I mean, me and my girlfriend make a pretty decent amount of money. We can't afford a fucking place like this, but she can afford it on her fucking journalistic salary. Superman shows up for their interview, and Superman chastises Lois for smoking, tells her that she doesn't have lung cancer yet, thank God, and that he doesn't drink and fly. Tons of innuendo here as Lois asks how big he is and if he eats. <laughs> this is great. But this is a great scene, though, because most people in the 70s who came to see Marlon Brando don't really know any of this stuff. It does a nice job of setting up that also, he can't see through lead. Mm-hmm. I like this interview scene quite a bit. Yeah, I think it does well. It kind of glosses over her in a... It hides exposition for those that may not fully know Superman, so kind of a nice way to do it. You can see their relationship. Whatever I feel about it, you can see what's going on between them. I am completely struck when she asks if he can tell the colors of her panties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I could not believe that. And then at the end, Superman going, hey, Lois, I like pink. That's just, yeah. holy shit. God damn, Puzo. It's a pretty delightful scene up here. It's cute. It's the first time that we're getting those two together in the relationship that we know is going to consummate eventually. Hmm. Good luck asking that panty question nowadays. There'd be freaking articles <laughs> written about how sexist that movie is. And no shit. You're not kidding. This shit might as well be like from the, the pre-Haze Code era by comparison. <laughs> what is not a good scene? Is a scene of them flying together. And we get this I can sweet, show you the world. <laughs> we get this sweet but nauseating poem from Lois. Even as a kid, I would fast forward through this scene, and it really serves little purpose other than to kill time and make us realize what's in Lois's head. Funny story about this scene. Donner was going to have Margot Kidder sing this. And Margot Kidder was like, you got to be nuts. I can't sing. And Donner's like, just go do it. So she goes and she records it at John Williams' studio. And John Williams calls Donner and says, yeah, this chick can't sing. <laughs> so they did a couple other versions of it. They did one that is a straight sung version of it, which I can't imagine with Margot Kidder singing. I just couldn't imagine that. God bless her. Rest in peace. But fuck, I don't want to hear that. They also did this weird jazzed up version of it that John Williams put together that is just so 70s. But I think they're going to maybe release that as a single. I'm not sure. But then Donner just came up with the idea, okay, I didn't like the way it sounded. I didn't like that inclusion, so I'm just going to put it in poem form. It gets the job done, but it is just a little long here, and we kind of got the point up on the balcony, didn't we, guys? Yeah. I mean, one, it's it's a beautiful thought and in a moment to see them fly together, but it doesn't need to be as long as it is. And I heard it literally was going to be Aladdin where they were going to go around the world, and they just restricted it to... Well, it's New York landmarks that are here in Metropolis. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's still, it's it's a little long. 
But a lot Matt. of things in this movie. Oh. I mean, it's things almost 2.30, and there's some chuffa. Mm-hmm. No, positively, no, positively. The way the scene should have concluded is that he takes her to the top of the Daily Planet. Yeah, that would have been perfect. It also serves another purpose, though. And for, I had forgotten about this, but the end of this scene is when we hear Superman's name for the very first time, uttered by Lois herself. So she's the one who names him. Lois can't think right now as Clark shows up for their date. Nice little bit of camera trickery there. And Clark starts for the first time having inklings about maybe telling her who he is. And again, Reeve plays this so well, even if I don't agree with this notion. Why is he going to tell her now? He's in love. This moment where he's in front of her fireplace and he takes off his glasses and straightens. Yes. And I know there's a gif of it that gets shared certain times of year and stuff like that. But that moment, because he straightens up, and I mean, it looks like he gains four inches in height just by straightening Uh his shoulders, squaring himself up. And even when he puts the glasses back on, it's like he's going to still try to be partial super because he doesn't hunch back over right away. Those 20 seconds is just stupendous in showing what Christopher Reeve specifically brought to the role. Yeah, and they'll also use this for the Donna cut next week. Or oh, yeah. Very similar. Mm-hmm. We cut to Lex reading the article Lois wrote, and he comes off of it with a plan to take Superman down, which is to get a piece of his planet, which produces enough radioactivity to kill him. I want to point out, Lois's article gave his villain all the information he yes. needed to kill Superman. <laughs> Kryptonite, lead, everything he needed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We then cut to Lex's plan in motion, and this just seems like Donner's having a bit of fun here as he crashes a car. And this car, he shows this car for quite a while here. The military is figuring a chest massage and mouth-to-mouth as a solution to Tessmacher on the ground unconscious. And we get more Otis buffoonery as he writes the vector number down on his arm wrong, and they have to go back again to get it. And this is actually what causes that second missile. It's the fact that fucking Lois wrote it down wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it uh, okay this part i this is when it gets a little too slapsticky or a lot too slapsticky with even the music it suddenly feels like it it's just it, uh, i don't know and then when they find out they screwed up one missile hey look at that now the army's got a missile too <laughs> yeah <laughs> what a fucking coincidence you could have just said that they had the plans for the missiles. You did not have to go through all this. And I think that Donner, again, is trying to inject a little bit of comedy here after the sweetness of the last scene. I get it. But, oh boy. Welcome, friend Adam. I've been waiting for you to come to my... <laughs> uh, th- this is the kind of bumbling stuff that I think wears on me the most. I get the movie is elevated in its humor and it's trying to be broad, but... Lex Luthor would not have someone this incompetent sticking around, even this version of Lex Luthor, unless they were trying to make some kind of comment about modern politics with nukes, which I highly dispute. This just does nothing for me. We see Jimmy take some pictures of a dam as Lois drives with somebody angry that the land in California is being bought. Clark, meanwhile, he's getting a lecture from Perry White as Lex gets to Clark through some kind of dog whistle. And he tells him that there's a poisonous gas about to wipe out the city if he doesn't come to see him. The one thing, real quick here, just the one thing I like with this moment is it shows here that Luther is smart and yeah. brilliant in his mind enough to do something like this. Like this kind of conniving evil genius Lex Luthor is, I think, the kind that's kind of missing, and I think what Matt and I would both like, because, yeah, the dog whistle of Superman, you're the only one other than dogs that could hear at this frequency. That's a great trick right there. This causes Superman to leave Perry White as he's talking to him, 
<laughs> and he falls out a window into another transformation and he follows the whistle to the street and I've really complimented the effects in this movie but here's where I think they were thinking a little too much for their own good this effect of him going underground disco style it just does not look good what do you have saws for feet like this is just weird <laughs> More scenes from the uncut version, by the way. When he gets down here, Superman's going through more obstacles to get to Lex, including bullets, some fire, a sheet of ice. Why Lex would have this down here, I don't know, but it does show him to be invulnerable until the inevitable scene that we're going to see here in a few minutes. But I kind of missed this scene. Do you guys know the scene I'm talking about? Do you guys have any idea of this? Yeah, the gauntlet scene. Yeah. Superman running the gauntlet to get to Lex's lair. And it's only, what, about three minutes? But yeah, it's, it's like bullets, fire, ice. Like, it's just trap after after trap after trap until he gets in there and I think you easily could have cut you know what you could have cut one of the missile sequences and had enough time to do it it's a shame because yeah I've seen it I've seen it restored and I've seen it in the piecemeal version and it's, it's a fun little scene it's an action scene it is part that we could kind of use it so it's basically the opening of Raiders of the Lost Ark yes yeah, pretty much yeah, yeah, it's it's it is. but in this cut we see him barreling down the door and I love the look on his face as Lex tells Otis to take his cape it's just like, don't you fucking touch it, asshole. Don't tug on Superman's cape. <laughs> exactly. Nuggets. <laughs> <laughs> this was the only role I knew of Ned Badian until I became a teenager and watched Deliverance. But that's a whole different movie. <laughs> that, yeah, that gives lots of hug and bear a whole new meaning. <laughs> You're not kidding. <laughs> Of course, the gas bomb was a ruse, and this was just an excuse to go over Lex's diabolical plan to, well, to do what exactly? <laughs> in order to get this plot in motion, Lex needs Superman to be out of commission. So, he says the detonator is in a lead box, but when Superman opens it, it ends up being a thing of kryptonite. And I'm going to compliment Reeves' performance again. I believe that this rock is flat out killing him with the way he's acting against it. Of course, he wears it like a pimp chain to throw him in the water. But I love the way Reeves' reacting here. Yeah, it's, I, I believe that kryptonite is going to kill Superman. And as a little boy, I truly believe it is hurting him. There is no word in or object in the pantheon of comics that I hate more than kryptonite. <laughs> because it is just the... Depend, depending on who's writing or what form of media, the smallest morsel of kryptonite can knock out Superman. We've seen everything from this giant rock in this movie to the Batman-Superman crossover in the DC Bruce Timm universe where Batman has a little sliver that he puts in a tiny Ziploc bag, puts it in front of Superman's face, and he's like, oh, oh God, get it away. Like, <laughs> all the way down to, like, you know, we'll talk about a couple of movies down the road where, like, there's a giant kryptonite mountain that's mm -hmm. has to fight. It's, I get with a character like Superman, you have to come up with some kind of weakness. But as a writer, it's the ultimate, all right, how can we take Superman out? Kryptonite. Anything else you can think of? We can make it blue. All right, fuck, let's go. <laughs> This land plot that Lex is putting together, I find it kind of genius. Now, Singer's going to run with this later, and we're definitely going to talk about it then. But I find the fact that he is buying this land only to destroy it and make a profit off it pretty genius. Like, I didn't get it as a kid. I'm like, okay, is the fact that he's hitting that map with his cane, is that what causes it to go? But I do love the fact that, yeah, San Andreas is a fault. Yes, it could destroy California in one big swoop. That's what he's kind of profiting on, and that's what he's sending these missiles to. The plot is insane. It's ridiculous. But I kind of dig it. What about you, Adam? Okay, as a kid, I lived in California, and we had earthquake drills. Yes. So this was a little too realistic. Guess what? 
as an 11-year-old, I went through the 1989 earthquake mm-hmm. and the World Series quake. So guess what? That was on the San Andreas Fault, you fucking Superman. It's a pretty damn genius plot, one that John Carpenter would kind of steal for Escape from L.A. Oh, <laughs> L.A. is up in the water. But I think of Lex Luthor as somebody that should be doing so much more than freaking real estate scams. Especially over and over in the Superman film universe, but for such a diabolical villain, for such a genius, even as he proclaims himself, and I believe that he is a genius, even though he hires poorly, I think this kind of plot is so beneath somebody like Luthor. I feel like I don't have to say anything and just talk about how they made fun of this and Teen Titans go to the movies. Like, <laughs> That kind of speaks to the lunacy of this plot. On the one hand, it's brilliant, but on the other hand, you're like, wait, Lex Luthor is the one who came up with this? So Lex puts this kryptonite on Superman and tells him that the other missile is headed to Hackensack, New Jersey, before pushing him into the pool. But this was a mistake, as Miss Tessmacher, she hears this and works to free Superman as her mom lives in Hackensack. Nice little human moment here, as I never believed that this woman was a bad person, just in with the wrong crowd. What is it with these Superman movies and people finding out that their moms are (laughs) integral parts of the third act? You think that's what Snyder was cribbing on for later? (laughs) Hey, whatever it took to get Miss Tessmacher in a white top into that pool, I don't care. Yeah, well, you got you, you get your wish, too, because Parker Posey's coming up in a couple months. Yep, which is funny, because did you notice, you know, that he's explaining Lutherville and Luther Valley and Otisburg? Oh, but there's also, that. there's Tessmacher Peaks. <laughs> I never caught that. Was one of the fucking lands. Yeah, you can tell Tom Nikowicz had a hand in this, because these are like Bond-level double entendre (laughs) jokes. Wow, I never caught that. And of all the times I've seen this movie, and I've seen it, God, probably going on 25 times. So Tessmacher frees Superman, and she kisses him for some reason. And this effect of him leaving the lair is just a glorious moment. I love when he just goes right through the ceiling. He heads out, and as promised, he goes after the missile headed towards Tessmacher's mom first. He gets rid of it, but this causes him to not get to the other missile in time, and it lands, and oh boy, Adam, did this bring back California earthquake memories. (laughs) Can I say, though, Jimmy Olsen, he's not in California. The Hoover Dam is not in California. (laughs) They're using a worse map than Luther's, because that is not where that thing is. (laughs) No, it's near me. Yeah. Superman couldn't prevent it, so we're seeing him try and pick up the remnants as he flies underground and repairs the fault, and this was fucking awesome. I love this effect. Oh, that looks so awesome when he's underneath and he's going through, and then he just lifts it up. Oh, wonderfully done. It's funny, because for such a out-of-the-realm-of-reality, it's a comic book movie, but still, you're playing it mostly straight. Such a out-of-the-realm-of-reality possibility, but it is still fun and fascinating to see him diving through the earth and literally picking back up the earth to repair the hole. It is, again, it's a general escalation of his powers. We saw it start small, and here it's as big as it's going to get. It's just amazing the way it's been written. But this causes major damage, so he then goes to help people. He grabs a bus full of kids and hauls it off the Golden State Bridge, saves a train from falling off the tracks, prevents water from flooding the state, and, of course, as Adam mentioned, he saves Jimmy. 
But all this leaves Lois in danger, and man, it never fails that I feel for this woman as we are seeing dirt just flood her mouth and just surround oh, her. God damn. This car falling into this crack in the earth as it's collapsing around her. Oh my god, it's fucking nightmare-inducing. Yep, that's exactly the word that I had written down, is this thing gave me nightmares as a kid, mm-hmm. and it's still frightening to see it now i don't i mean i'm sure that there was a stunt woman in there as it was getting done but wow just the way that it's shot the way that the camera when the dirt is pouring in is it's very confining it's claustrophobic if you listen to donna on the commentary that's actually her and he said he felt awful as he just kept having to pour more and more dirt on her god damn yeah did he think she was shelly duvall (laughs) (laughs) that would come later this movie is probably why i have a certain amount of claustrophobia and why i've never been to california (laughs) (laughs) superman he gets to the car too late as he pulls it up and pulls her out of it lois is engulfed and suffocated he remembers his past teachings as jorel told him not to interfere with the human condition and not Um, to interfere but remember to turn on the microwave and flip over the hot pocket for you (laughs) and his stepdad of course was saying that you were put here for a reason so he's getting all this in his head as he's up in the air he doesn't listen to his real dad and in something i'll say right now that i'm not a big fan of he turns back time couple things about this one this was an ending intended for next week but donner wanted it here also this sets up that superman never has to worry about his friends being in danger because anytime any of them dies he can just rotate the world and stop it I hate it hate it hate it yeah it, it took the words right out of my mouth like the cement did in that car to Lois Lane, because the fact that Superman can do this eliminates any future stakes. Yeah. Because even if he did this at the end of the second movie, as he originally intended, I still would have called bullshit. Even with Superman, I think it's important to come up with some sort of limit onto what he can do. He's not God, especially if you have something as lazy as kryptonite, which is just a, a fucking rock that people can buy off Amazon on some point. Because it, it's later on in these movies, random people just have kryptonite and, and know its properties. So there's a reason why this is kind of an infamous ending, because I've thought about it. Logic be damned. I just don't like that he... It sort of spits in the face of his father dying, because... Why don't you yeah. just go back in time and take him to a hospital? Yeah, exactly. You know, I understand the reasoning for next week's movie more, because we'll talk about that. But really, the fact that Lois knows his secret and he doesn't want her to, and the trouble it's caused her is what causes him to do it in that movie. But the producers, they wanted this ending here because they weren't sure if the second movie was going to be released, and they wanted to get this in here. It kills this movie, man, because I shouldn't say kills it. It just it puts a real damper on my liking of almost everything up until this point. Adam, what about you? Yeah, I mean, it almost would have been, well, shoot, today's day and age, if you do it, you would actually probably keep Lois dead to learn that lesson. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it's, if I can turn back time, then nothing really matters. (laughs) It doesn't matter at that point, because there's Mm -hmm. no steaks anymore. It's like a vegetarian restaurant. I mean, I get it, and I understand what they were going for, especially when it's like, hey, we need to put this movie out before we can think that we're putting another one out. It's not the ending that this film deserved, after everything that it had put up. So, when he finishes rotating the Earth, of course, everyone's okay. 
There are no consequences for defying his father. And the one thing Smallville does that is way better than how this movie handles it is the idea that Kal-El has consequences if he defies his father. That is really played upon in that show. Lois yells at Superman for him not being around when she needs him the most. And in response, Superman just says that he's been busy for a while. And here comes Jimmy to also chastise Superman, which means that he makes the perfect decision to leave right then and there. <laughs> Later, guys. But it is here where Lois starts putting together that when Superman's around, Clark isn't. To be continued. We cut to Superman bringing Lex and Otis to jail, and it is here where we finally see Lex bald. And again, according to Donner, he pretty much had to sell his wife and kids off to get Hackman to don this skull cap. <laughs> I like this moment, though. I, I love it. Yeah. When he's in prison and just standing up and Lex Luthor, criminal mastermind, whipping the wig right off. It's just a, Oh, it's 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 yeah. beautiful. Especially because it's so obviously a wig. It's like who are you trying to impress? Yeah. yeah. I, I felt like I'm laying in Seinfeld. I want to yell, You're bald <laughs> <laughs> Superman tells the warden that they're all part of the same team and flies off into the sky, waving at who as a kid I believe to be me as credits roll on Superman the movie. Alright boys, quite a spirited discussion about a very spiritual film. On a scale of 1 to 10, what do we feel about Superman the movie? Adam, you go ahead and go, sir. Superman the movie, When I think when you discuss comic book movies, when you discuss greatest, favorite, where they come from, where did you go? This movie gets brought up in every single discussion, period. And it's for a good reason. It wasn't just that it was the first, quote-unquote the first. The earnestness with which this movie is made is why it still, 45 years later, is entertaining, stands the test of time, but still resonates from an emotional beat, from a story beat, from acting, to the set pieces, to the score. We got Matt to compliment a score, and that tells you something about this movie. There's issues throughout a little bit. It is not an action-packed movie. If you were to release this movie today, I don't think it would be well-received. I don't think a lot of films in the 70s, though, would have that. It's definitely a different set of pacing. It's a different aesthetic. It's even different acting choices. The ingredients they put in the stew, in the gumbo of this movie, make it one of the best superhero movies made. This is the template that other movies follow. That doesn't mean that it gets the highest score that doesn't mean that it's going to rank above certain other movies on certain meters and things like that however it's hard to say that this isn't literally the most super of superhero movies christopher reeve is amazing it is ridiculous that they got this casting so perfect it's rare that you get these kind of casting choices and you get it so right i can think of only two or three others that nail this role so damn well margot kidder we were hard on her a little bit but she she's great as a ball busting lois lane i don't think she's great as romantic partner to clark kent gene hackman i enjoy seeing him quite a bit i think what he did with this Lex Luthor was really fun. I just wanted a different Lex Luthor. Marlon Brando, good intro to the film and good backstop to the character that is Kal-El. All in all, Richard Donner had a tall mountain to climb, and he leaped it. And he flew, and this movie flew right along with it. It's a great film, even with the issues. And we we picked quite a bit of issues throughout. It is 
overly long. It's got some areas that really need to be trimmed. Some of the pacing, some of the tones shift uneasily and unnecessarily throughout. But putting this on, I still will watch it beginning to end anytime, and I'll be happy to do so. Superman the movie, it's a 9. It's 9 on 10. Wow, 9 on 10 from Adam Bunch. Mr. Goudreau, could you uh, go as high? So I'm not going to be really that long-winded because I feel like this is one of those movies. When I when I knew we were doing this series, this was a movie that I knew my score would not change on a rewatch because I've seen it quite a few times. And my opinions have been shared by almost everyone else. I am not going to be a contrarian on this show at all. I, I made some light-hearted comments and some personal quibbles that I have more so with Superman as a property than the movie as a whole. But I place a lot of value on context and being the first and setting the bar remarkably high. And I think that's what this movie did, not just for Superman, but for all superheroes on screen. Better or worse, we have yet to have Superman come close to being Christopher Reeve. Talk about setting the bar high. Talk about Richard Donner, a sadly no longer with us, but a celebrated director taking a comic book property and making it, treating it like a Hollywood epic, which comic books are sort of the modern-day Greek mythology. And I think he treated it as such, because this was not done, despite what the Salkinds would lead you to believe, to make money. I feel like everyone who showed up to this, from the cast to the production crew, to the effects team, to the costumers, everyone played their part to make this a big deal. And that tagline of you'll believe a man can fly, I think echoes very true for people who first saw this. I'm, I'm not one of them, of course, but think about people who did and what that would have been like. So 45 years later, this is still not one of my personal favorite superhero movies, but I do think it is still in that conversation of both the most important and in a subjective sort of way, what I consider to be the best. I just wish if I had a stronger resolution, to be frank, it would be in my top five. But as it stands, it's a very strong 8 on 10. And I'm very curious if I'm going to score any of these subsequent movies as highly as that. All right. I'm going to kill the mystery right now. This is not going to be a 10 out of 10 for me. It was going to be pretty close. When I think about first, we got to think about the context of which this movie had. This came out 10 years after Adam West Batman. We talked about that last year. Everybody had fun with that movie. However, that movie tainted superheroes for quite a while, which is why this movie was so hard to get funding for, because people wanted to see camp. They wanted to see slapstick. They wanted to see their heroes not have these father issues, not have these real-life issues that were actually in those books. It was because of that Batman series. Here, you're absolutely right, Matt. Donner did a first here. He took this, he grabbed it, and he made this into a movie that... It is not perfect. There are definitely missteps here, but not too many. I think Christopher Reeve, there is not going to be a better Superman. Probably not in our lifetime. Although I think Tom Willing came pretty close than that run of Smallville. I think he did pretty well, but we can probably talk about that at the end of the series. I think Gene Hackman, just like Jack Nicholson's Joker, he was a big name star who came in, gave this some credibility, and with what he had, he had to just be Gene Hackman to be that character, and he is fun every time he's on screen. Marlon Brando, a presence. He didn't really come to play if you asked Donner and if you ask Christopher Reeve he really didn't like working with Marlon Brando even if he was excited to do so but when you think about Superman's father that's who I think of Margot Kidder I do love her spunk and I do love her approach to this character as a whole this movie can be blamed 
for a lot of people who I hear, including one or two on this podcast, complain about origin stories. Why do we need origin stories? Well, this was the ultimate origin story, and it hit such a piece of my heart when I watched it as a kid and I watched it as an adult that, yeah, I will watch it anytime. Now, do I have Superman pajamas anymore? No. I'm not going to run around pretend to be Superman anymore, but I will be taken back to a time when comic book characters were not real big on screen. We did not see these movies on screen. We did not see comic books every other week in the movie theater every other month in the movie theater this was what they gave us they gave us a biblical epic and yes i do see the ties to the bible i do see the ties to jesus in this movie it is not hard to miss but it's not a perfect movie it is a nine out of ten most of that is because of the heart it's because of the score because of the majestic direction that donner gives us and it's because of the mythos that they are still playing off of today but this was not just one movie that they filmed they filmed two movies in the course of this production that second movie we'll be talking about next week superman 2 and oh do we have things to talk about when it comes to superman 2 adam what do you expect when we talk about superman 2 next week Superman 2 is the movie I think I remember the most out of all these. I remember the Kryptonians on Earth and planet Houston. Uh, I just, I think I remember just a bunch of that movie so much more. I had to have watched it many more than this one. And maybe it's just because that's the tape that was closest or what it was. But Zod, Terrence Stamp and Zod just still stands out in my mind. All right, Goudreau, what do you expect when we talk about Superman 2 next week? It's been a long time since I've seen either cut. And to be honest, there's one cut I will watch ten times over the other one, but I'm curious to do both. I, like Adam, have a very strong fondness for the Kryptonian villains. There's a scene that I quote constantly in my personal life, and it's not the one you're thinking of. I will save it for next week. But I'm, I'm excited that we're doing this series, and this is uh, it's an interesting pivot point. And we're already two movies in, and shit's starting to get crazy. Shit definitely gets crazy. We have a new director, more than 70% into this production. We have so many things to dig into next week, but we will save them. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. And again, we're not going to do this entire run of Superman all in a row like we did Batman. For the most part, I mean, we did have a couple little pivots here and there, but we're going to do these first four movies and then stay tuned because in the next couple of months we will do Supergirl, Superman Returns, Man of Steel, and Batman v Superman. But stay tuned for those and everything else that we have coming up on Percolator Media because we have so many plans, so many things that we're going to do in addition to our regular feed stuff. But I, one thing I want to point out is that, yes, we are launching a Patreon account, but we are never, ever going to charge for these podcasts. Every single Friday, you will always get a Percolated Media retrospective podcast. You can always count on that. The stuff we're doing on Patreon is to enhance what we're already doing. And so if you like what we're doing, please help support us. It's not free to do this. It's a lot of hours. It's a lot of time, but it's stuff that we want to continue doing. And in order to do that, we are going to need your help. So please help contribute to the Patreon account. Boys, thank you for joining me. And until next week, when we talk Superman 2, I like podcasts very much, Lois. Thank you, boys. Once more, we survived the threat of war and found a fragile peace. I thought I could give you all the gift of the freedom from war, but I was wrong. It's not mine to give. We're still a young planet. There are galaxies out there. 
other civilizations for us to meet, to learn from. What a brilliant future we could have. And there will be peace. There will be peace when the people of the world want it so badly that their governments will have no choice but to give it to them. I just wish you could all see the earth the way that I see it. Because when you really look at it, it's just one world. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. Join us next week for an entirely new review. I see you are practiced in worshipping things that fly. Men in a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. Mind over muscle. Edited by Garrett. Hey, that man's a miracle. Voiceovers by Adam. Ruler of Australia, activate the mission. The Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is for review and discussion and all clips music, and audio cues are used as such. Good job, give me countdown, we'll get going. Hey, I'm just getting the backup going. <clears throat> oh, okay, yeah. Better better get that going just in case. Lord knows. I think this one's going to go long, and Lord knows I don't want to record it again. <laughs> That's all good. Uh, it's going, so... Why not Donner did? <laughs> <laughs> we'll have our own Donner cut of this one. <laughs> yeah, right? There is the producer's cut, which I watched for that network TV version. That's three hours, and that's pretty much everything the producers just threw on, and they, they threw... Oh, thank you, honey. Go ahead, put it right there. Uh, Jen just got home. Um, they... Uh... <laughs>
you at least believe that Superman can come from this guy's loins. Matt, you have the fan of the uh, old school films and all that classic filmmaking. What do you think of Brando in this? Sorry, I was doing my Brando impression to be fed my lines. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Off screen. <laughs> <laughs> I think he... To me, this is like the equivalent of Uncle Ben dying by a random act of violence. That Superman, for all of his power, cannot save his father because there is no superpower that can combat mortality and what makes people human. That's the ultimate tragedy of, of Superman in certain ways. But also, there is the... I don't know how to, how to really articulate this, but I guess I'll give it my best shot that... <laughs> best shot. Sorry, Uncle Ben. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, it's it's that there's the whole I, I, you know what I'm going to save it for when we get to Man of Steel alright oh there's a like, tease it's just a very mind need to leave and suddenly we're at the North Pole Matt same yeah and knowing that this is sort of Jarrell's shrine where his, his residence is he should have walked in and said oh I wish you were the pizza delivery boy <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I really regret throwing it to you. Uh, Clark. You better. <laughs> Clark. And I, I wish to consummate it, they went up to the top of the Daily Planet. <laughs> yeah. Not consummate in that way. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, just to finish by landing up there. Yeah, yeah. Say that again because I really stepped on it. Go ahead. The way the scene should have concluded is that he takes her to the top of the Daily Planet. <laughs> It doesn't matter at that point because there's mm -hmm. no steaks anymore. It's like a vegetarian restaurant. And. <laughs> <laughs> Matt really liked that line. <laughs> oh my god, that made me so happy. <laughs> um... Wow, 9 on 10 from Adam Bunch. Mr. Goudreau, could you uh, go as high? Well, he was talking about something really long and needed to be trimmed. I thought he was talking about my Valentine's Day yesterday. <laughs> I thought you were going to say his review. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Go ahead. I guess it died of acid indigestion.